Hello and welcome to the Bureau Podcast. It's your new home for compelling, trustworthy, and independent investigative journalism. The Bureau.News is the brainchild of Canada's finest independent investigative journalist, Sam Cooper, and features exclusive stories and analysis of domestic and international news you simply will not find anywhere else. You definitely want to subscribe to the Bureau.News, which is Sam's new home on Substack. I'm John McComb, the host of the Bureau podcast, and I'll be catching up with Sam regularly to discuss his latest investigations, and in particular, China's attempts to influence Canadian politics and undermine our democracy. And Sam, to that end, we have a major breaking development in the RCMP's investigation of Chinese government interference in this country. Charges now laid involving an ex-high-level RCMP undercover operator named Bill Miker. He's accused of intimidating a resident of Canada on behalf of the communist Chinese government. That's right, John. And uh, I have to say, it's such an honor to work with you. And really, this is a proud moment for the Bureau. We do seek to lead the international media in important international stories. And this is a case where the Bureau came out with uh, this story of this sprawling, fascinating international investigation that I've been following for a few years now, quietly gathering information. I knew that both CSIS and RCMP national security units, indeed, I'm told, foreign governments, that is the United Kingdom, the United States, their agencies have been allegedly following Mr. Miker. And the concerns, uh, as I've reported, are that he has extensive law enforcement contacts in Canada and worldwide, as I found. The allegations are that somehow he has been mandated or under the influence or control of Chinese security in order to help them enact what we know is President Xi Jinping's so-called fox hunt or repatriation operations in other countries, especially Canada. So the allegations from the RCMP and those charges, uh, they're limited, they're cryptic, but they speak to a conspiracy and a case of allegedly threatening or intimidating what appears to be a, a Chinese national in Canada. Indeed, it could be a permanent resident. Uh, it may even be a, a person that has full status in Canada and yet had migrated from China. So again, the Bureau broke this story internationally. Days later, the RCMP announced they had charged Mr. Miker with these very serious allegations. For some reason, he was in Vancouver. He was arrested and has been charged. Let's listen to Inspector uh, David Baudouin from the RCMP announcing those charges. The arrest today uh, regards the uh, laying of criminal charges on uh, Mr. William Miker, retired RCMP employee. Both these are uh, believed to be to assist China in identifying and intimidating somebody on uh, Canadian territory. That's uh, Inspector David Baudouin for the RCMP. I think you know, laying up clearly, this is about intimidation, similar to a case that we talked about on the first podcast regarding a former law enforcement official in the United States. Well, now those same allegations in Canada. That's right. What we know internationally, uh, from the U.S. especially, who's been the leader on these indictments going after so-called Chinese covert police stations or networks in New York and Boston, is that China 
has proxies, will use the case in New York. These would be so-called community leaders from the Fujian migrant community. They have groups that allegedly are intimidating people that have migrated to the United States to have freedom. The concerns in the FBI investigations are that they used in New York, a former New York cop. What the allegations say is that two individuals worked with this New York cop to locate an individual who had migrated from China. There were threats posted on this individual's door. The reports that followed said that he had felt psychological fear and pressure from China. But when he saw a note posted on his door that referred to his family and messages that he should return to China at once, he now felt fear for his personal safety. So how does that reflect on what is happening in Canada? What we know is, again, Micah has been charged with threatening. That is part of a conspiracy that involved a threat to an individual. And the allegations suggest that he used his contacts, his knowledge of Canada's law enforcement system, his deep connections to a current or former RCMP officers to uh, help China locate an individual that they wanted to get after. What we do know is that the investigation purportedly covered from around 2014 to 2019. And again, I'm told that this is a very sprawling, complicated investigation. John, I can tell you, I know that a number of current or former RCMP officers have been investigated. So this is bigger, I believe, than one case, one individual threatened. And in the case of uh, William Miker, it's very interesting because he was part of one of the people interviewed for an Australian broadcasting company documentary back in 2019 called Project Dragon. And uh, at one point in the doc, he was asked specifically if he was working for the Chinese police apparatus. I'm a hired gun to, to help uh, either large corporates or governments to get back what is rightfully theirs. I have a commercial relationship with uh, entities that are themselves uh, associated um, in some form or another with, uh, with policing authorities in, in China. Uh, tiptoeing slowly to the point, but <laughs> I think eventually he got there. So, yes, he's done work for the Chinese government. Well, yeah, and I don't think he, he, he may have helped himself by calling himself a hired gun. In hindsight, he might have taken that back. But look, the facts are the facts. What he acknowledged is openly we can go to corporate registries and find that he is part of this purported asset recovery firm. And he acknowledges that it's connected to uh, an individual or, or entities as he sort of dances around the issue that ultimately connect to the Ministry of Public Security. And so how does that work, John? We know I've reported for years that Xi Jinping had this popular fox hunt or Skynet campaign. Everyone knew that a capital flight corruption at a high level in China was a problem. And they put out the narrative that they wanted justice in China. They wanted that money back. So it's not just allegedly Mr. Miker. There's a lot of private investigators who happen to be uh, high level police officers that graduated into that private sphere. Many of them have a, a lot of knowledge of transnational, let's call it money laundering or just high level finance. And they would have used their knowledge 
They'd use their connections. Some of them, like Mr. Miker, had themselves been covertly inserted to high-level money laundering networks. So in a nutshell, Mr. Miker allegedly would have used everything he learned at the RCMP to then privately go after these individuals. But as I've found, John, China really did not want the money of these individuals that they were planting into real estate markets in Vancouver, Toronto, Melbourne, London, worldwide. They wanted to be on the soil of foreign countries and uh, looking into really the lives of people that had migrated from China for a number of reasons. And again, the allegations are, it's not just Mr. Miker, many people, many networks of former law enforcement officers worldwide allegedly used by China for that purpose. And Sam, the people who are the recipients of this harassment, who are the uh, targets of this kind of attention, are these good guys or bad guys? It's an easy question in one way. It's also a complex question. So I like complex questions because this is the nature of my work. This is a very, you know, as I've kind of started to hint, an extremely sophisticated Chinese intelligence operation, we now know, they want to control diaspora communities worldwide. You know, we did so much, we talked so much about the Vancouver model, so let's look at that. We have an official that launders money out of China through Macau, Vancouver, Hong Kong, Toronto, by using underground casino transactions and then investing into real estate in other countries. They could be a corrupt official. They could be a high-level gangster. They may be one in the same at the same time. Or they could be simply people that want to get in some cases, their children into good schools, let's say in Boston, Los Angeles, Toronto, Vancouver, and they can't get around China's capital controls of 50,000 US exported per year. They may even be a target of the Chinese government for their pro-democracy uh, views or criticism of officials in China. So they've got to get out of China. They go abroad. Maybe they're trying to live by the, the laws uh, of Canada and be a good democratic citizen. But they're using these underground channels. Does that make them a, a bad guy or some of them are? could be dissidents that get a bit of money out and, you know, they, they do what they have to do. So good guys, bad guys. Look, when you're under the thumb of a thuggish regime, it just complicates matters so much. What I can say, John, is that China is not interested in getting their money back that, that has flooded out of China for the most part. They are interested in controlling whoever has landed on Canada's shores. And it just so happens that the way business is done in China, it does involve, you know, a lot of fraud, a lot of corruption, a lot of obscure transactions. So we, we try to simplify it, but it's a very complex matter that I'm still figuring out. I know the RCMP and CSIS are still trying to figure it out. There was another fellow involved who you interviewed uh, just uh, a few weeks back about his new book. Uh, he's also a former Mountie by the name of Kim Marsh. Talk about that and what he had to say. Yeah, that was a, a very in-depth interview. And I'll just say that this is what we strategically, we, we're going to do at the Bureau. We give people that are right at the center of important stories a big, let's just call it canvas, to talk about what they're involved in. So in the course of that interview, we covered a lot. And it's important to say that, yes, I, uh, at the province newspaper, collaborated with Kim Marsh on looking at 
the real estate footprint, the very suspicious real estate footprint of a Chinese national who had allegedly, Mr. Marsh found, absconded with about $455 million from China's largest state-owned bank, the ICBC, not to be confused with her. <laughs> our insurer, wait a minute! Wait, wait a minute! What? It's the Industrial Commercial uh, Bank of China, not BC's an insurance entity. But uh, 455 million. Mr. Marsh and his uh, private investigation company identified what they thought was a major real estate fraud in Canada, stemming from a major bank fraud in China. I, on the other hand, was working, as you know, on sort of trying to figure out this mystery money flooding into Vancouver. I discovered that this Chinese national, just contrary to what would seem like any good regulatory practices in Canada, had a massive and growing real estate footprint in, in Canada, that is Vancouver at that time, of about $500 million. So we came out with this big expose. Marsh and I worked together on, on different sort of investigative channels. And this is where it gets complicated. Our story came out. Nothing happened in Canada. No action taken against this individual. Obviously, uh, Vancouver citizens were interested uh, on, on whether this real estate money was legit or not. Mr. Marsh then told me in our story, our interview that we ran for the Bureau, that he started looking at whether if Canada wasn't interested, if China's government, who they approached through that Chinese state-owned bank, wasn't interested, could Mr. Marsh tap his contacts with Mr. Miker, who he had worked with and been very close with in the RCMP undercover operation system. He knew that Mr. Miker was in Hong Kong. So as Mr. Marsh told me, he uh, they got together, they talked about whether uh, Mr. Miker's contacts might be interested in looking at this major real estate developer in Vancouver, who Mr. Marsh would have thought China's government would be interested in. So this, at the time, again, it looked like fox hunt. Some people thought this could be a legitimate Chinese state judicial operation. Indeed, at that time, back in around 2014, 2015, China, as I recall, trying to work out a deal with the CBSA and the RCMP on whether they could legitimately pursue corruption suspects in Canada. As we know, in hindsight, it was all a scam. They were, not to get off topic here, as I've reported for the Bureau, documents say China was leveraging its fentanyl market against the RCMP, saying, you'd better help us on these fox hunt operations, Canada, or else we won't help you on fentanyl trafficking. So I say this just to say that we have allegations. Mr. Marsh has been named, uh, reportedly, in the Micah conspiracy investigation. Mr. Marsh, for his part, says he doesn't believe in the case that we wrote about that any action ultimately was taken against this individual in Vancouver. And he says he doesn't believe he did anything wrong. He feels frustrated that he has been a, a target of this investigation against Mr. Miker. I should say again, you know, in our story, I went directly to Mr. Miker. He said if CSIS or RCMP's national security units have allegations that he has been working with China's government inappropriately in foreign interference. He would deny those allegations. And uh, that's where we are right now. Days after our story broke, he was charged. And I can tell you, John, I know that through my sourcing, I know that his lawyer, that is Mr. Micro's lawyer, is starting to receive disclosure. And there's just going to be a lot of information in a complex 
case that gets a lot bigger than, you know, purportedly, allegedly one individual intimidated in Canada. And I think in your uh, interview with Kim Marsh, that he ended up by saying, I think if Canadians knew the whole story, they would be aghast. Aghast was his word. Those were his words. And uh, I asked him very directly a number of questions. First of all, uh, when he said that Mr. Miker had a, a connection with the Chinese government, I said, wait, so you're saying Mr. Miker was working with the national police, that is the Ministry of Public Security. And Mr. Marsh said, well, yes. Uh, his words again were, I may cause Miss uh, Billy, as he calls him, consternation, but those are the facts. And so what Kim Marsh's point was, if we really boil down his interview, was he is saying, yes, he worked with Billy Miker, and they both worked with China's government in what Mr. Marsh thought could be a legitimate operation in Fox Hunt. And yet Mr. Marsh is saying, in hindsight, he doesn't believe he did anything wrong. In fact, he is saying that he tried to draw Canada's government's eyes to this illegitimate, all kinds of real estate money laundering. He calls himself a whistleblower and uh, strongly maintains that he should not be dragged into any conspiracy investigation. Well, I think therein lies the problem, because on the one hand, you could say, well, the Chinese government was legitimately running an operation where they were trying to get embezzlers and thieves and people who had stolen hundreds of millions from banks and, and what have you, they were trying to get them back to put them on trial. On the other hand, you have what we, I think, are looking at as the dirty side of that is that in this country, people are being intimidated, they're being followed, which includes our politicians, some of them. And so that very much takes away from this idea that the Chinese Communist Party was only looking for justice. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, I myself was uh, following these stories, very <laughs> breaking these stories about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. At the time, I think it would be fair to say that a number of people in the West, be they journalists or, or even law enforcement, thought, well, there may be some legitimacy to, to China trying to extradite what it called corrupt officials or or money that really belonged to its state banks that had been invested in real estate abroad. And yet what has come out through my reporting in the last year or two is that it developed, I would say, after 2015, 2016, CSIS started to understand that the fox hunt was really not about going after money for real legitimate judicial reasons in China. It was about intelligence operations. Very simply, they wanted to have control over people that have left China. They wanted to gather intelligence from them. Indeed, John, from what I know, they were afraid that people that had a lot of secrets of China's political elite perhaps could be a risk to them because these people are now in the West. So let's just think of it. They could be sharing China's secrets with uh, Western officials, Western law enforcement, Western intelligence. So in a nutshell, it's so complex, but what we now know, what I've gathered, what CSIS has gathered is Beijing wants full visibility on uh, diaspora communities. They want to have insight into the lives of everyone in these communities so that they will not, you know, really be a threat to the Chinese regime. And as a follow on to what you've said about uh, the Chinese government wanting to keep taps on people in this country and others, the establishment of these police departments is what they were called, 
which only now, only recently, the RCMP seemed to be engaged in uh, breaking them up or, or shutting them down. What was this whole police station thing about? We knew for a long time that fox hunt was happening. We knew that the China claimed they were legitimately going after corrupt officials. But what emerged from a, an international NGO called Safeguard Defenders last fall was that open source documents in China said that China's Ministry of Public Security police bureaus had established what were supposedly, you know, stations for diaspora communities to uh, renew travel documents for returning to China or to have some contact uh, for legitimate reasons with officials in China. But what the safeguard defenders and, and other investigators found were these were really brick and mortar assets that the Chinese security state had put down in Western nations, of course, Canada, very prominent, in order to implant officials from the Ministry of Public Security and networks of community proxies, let's just take Vancouver and Toronto, would work out of these stations and interview people that China wanted to repatriate. Perhaps the interviews had other purposes, but this took what we started to learn within the past few years of these illegitimate covert repatriation operations from China to a new level because they had the audacity to plant down what were really unofficial consulates or embassies in Western cities and operate intelligence and security from those buildings. You also, in the last couple of weeks, uh, sat down with a former Canadian MP. Her name is Nellie Shin. She was the first Korean-Canadian elected to the House of Commons. And you had a discussion with her about how the various diaspora communities in Canada are dealing with these kinds of pressures from the governments of places that they left. That's right. She's had a very interesting career path. She was elected in uh, Port Moody, Coquitlam in 2019. She lost in 2021. And at that point, she decided to follow uh, the path of taking national security courses. And so this was spurred by her experience during her term that people within her riding had approached her looking for help, saying that they had been targeted by uh, foreign regimes on Canadian soil. And as Nellie Shin told me, she tried to help them as an MP, but found that Canada really had no system in place. That is, you know, the RCMP uh, wasn't investigating. CSIS knew about this activity, but there wasn't much they could do about it. Simply, I believe, because Canada didn't have the right laws in place and still doesn't. So the point that uh, Ms. Shin made to me was that in her studies, she found that CSIS has been warning its political masters, let's call them in Ottawa, for 30 years that this type of activity was occurring, ramping up, and there has been no response in terms of tasking the RCMP more directly to intervene, interdict, and prosecute these uh, operations from foreign regimes. So I asked her, can you get more specific about what you heard? Uh, what were these constituents telling you? She said for privacy reasons, she couldn't name a country, but she could say there the allegations were extremely consistent with what I have reported recently, what MP Aaron O'Toole came out in, in Parliament and talked about, and that is people being harassed, stalked, blackmailed, just pressure from a foreign regime that they tried to escape. And this is happening on Canadian soil. Nothing is being done. And Ms. Shin made the extra point that I thought was very interesting. She said, well, 
a lot of Canadian politicians seem to be very eager to tap into diaspora votes. And really, they seem to be just using diaspora politics for really uh, electioneering and yet not listening to these deep civil right concerns that these very same diaspora communities may not feel safe to vote for the candidates of their choice because they're being targeted. And she just said that it's egregious, unconscionable, and essentially uh, we need a public inquiry to both figure out these issues and figure out why Canada's governments haven't responded. And it it leads us back to a, a conversation we had on our first episode of the Bureau podcast, and that was the apparent lack of interest on the part of the Trudeau government to really dive into this and really try to get to the bottom of it. We're still waiting for some kind of public inquiry. We've heard that there was a little bit of coming together of the conservatives and the liberals on the issue, and they might be getting closer to hammering something out. But unlike countries like Australia, which, uh, you know, they stood up and said, no, we're not going to allow this to happen in our country. And these are the laws that we're going to pass to make sure that it doesn't happen. These are the people who we're going to kick out of the country because we think they're involved. Just a a 180 degree difference in what Australia has done versus what Canada has not done. (laughs) That, that, That is what it is, John. We're now a year after, I would say, I started to gather explosive information from Canadian whistleblowers that just had enough. They had had enough about, you know, hearing the same information that Nellie Shin has reported, that diaspora communities are under deep threats, which, by the way, again, include, as we now know, uh, threats of violence, intimidation. Nothing was being done after years of warnings to the Trudeau government. And it's not just the Trudeau government. As I've reported, this has been going on for decades. It has ramped up for the past since 2012. This is what the Canadian intelligence says. Uh, There have been direct warnings, again, bringing it back to the Trudeau government since 2015, that China was running these covert operations uh, on Canadian soil. Uh, CSIS was essentially begging this government to get together on an all-of-government response to these covert repatriation operations, and nothing happened. In fact, government coordination got worse after our prime minister was briefed from his uh, top advisors that more needs to happen. This is what I've revealed through documents, and this is why we're talking about what framework does a public inquiry need? Beyond that, will it happen? And as you've said, uh, Australia, given the same kind of warnings years ago, took quick and direct action to put in a foreign agent registry uh, to amend their espionage, their treason laws, we're, as I've said, years after internal government warnings, is it 10 months now since Canadian public has been very directly informed about all of this intelligence and nothing has changed? I recently talked to Charles Burton, a former Canadian diplomat, expert on Canada-China relations. He said he's starting to sense or fear that We're looking at the Trudeau government, but this is a cross-party issue. Many elite politicians have been approached. They've been made, quote, friends of China. They've been given uh, business inducements after they step out of office. So Mr. Burton told me he really uh, is concerned that there just is not the cross-party political will behind a public inquiry. Even though uh, it looks like, as you've said, we keep hearing week after week from Ottawa's uh, press gallery that the parties are negotiating, but nothing's happening. Where's the action? The idea that the tentacles 
because this has been going on through various administrations over the decades, that those tentacles or that exposure to communist China is so deep that you're not going to get much political action because everybody's looking over their shoulder and suddenly there's rampant paranoia because nobody wants to be brushed with it or tainted with it. I think that's exactly what Mr. Burton would argue. And I've gathered enough information that I can tell you, John, that I have documents that show this goes back to the early 1990s. There are major allegations of corruption in Hong Kong, which touch upon Canadian officials in terms of who is involved in these criminal and espionage operations in Canada. I have documentation that I plan to carefully unpack for the Bureau in the coming months and years, which will point to just the most, uh, let me put it this way, the knowledge in Canada and United States governments at a high level of how high this goes in China, that is intelligence connected with organized crime in China and attacking other nations. People will be shocked when they know how specific our Canadian government their knowledge of these allegations are, and the lack of response again for decades. So it's going to get a lot worse. And indeed, you know, it's just a, it sometimes weighs on me. And I believe maybe it'll start to weigh on you as we talk about these issues in the podcast. It's, uh, it's disillusioning to look at how deep this corruption could go, transnational corruption, and what can our governments do about it if, as you indicate, very powerful either current or former politicians may worry that they could get dragged into this. So why would they want a public inquiry to look deeper? Even worse, the thought sometimes crosses my mind, uh, would people stand against um, certain laws like the amendments in Australia on national security because they or their close associates might be the target of such laws? The more I learn, the worse it looks, unfortunately. And I'm telling you, this is not you know, just my um, extrapolations. These are comments from current and former national security officials about how bad it is. We will uh, do this again in a couple of weeks. Maybe can you drop a hint as to what uh, we might be talking about, what you're working on? Absolutely, John. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're partners in this now, so I can tell you that <laughs> as we speak, I'm working on, uh, look, everyone has focused on these core allegations of election interference, but how is election interference actually enacted? Uh, I'm looking at media. As you know, media, <laughs> good media is a positive influence on democracy, free and independent press. What would be the converse of good media? That would be the type of media that China successfully enforces in their country, and they're trying to successfully enforce in Canada and other nations. How does that fit into election interference is what I'm I'm uh, looking into. Well, I look forward with great anticipation to sitting down and talking about that one. In the meantime, thanks for doing this. And we will catch up uh, on the Bureau podcast in two weeks' time. I also want to remind people to head to your Substack page, thebureau.news, and subscribe because you're uh, now an independent free agent. You're no longer working for global television. You've decided to strike out on your own. And uh, the work that you've done over the years, I think, should not only encourage people, but should make people feel pleased that there is an independent investigative journalist out there doing the real work and coming up with the real good. So uh, I look forward to uh, riding your coattails on this for a few years to come. 
Well, John, thanks. And on that point, I'll add this. Look, again, the Bureau beat international media on this very important international Billy Micro story. That's the proof that independent investigative media, we're leading the way in Canada, and you're an important part of unpacking these sophisticated stories. Because I think as our conversation today shows, uh, once you start talking about them, it just goes deeper and deeper, and you have to get the right context around uh, all of this information. Thank you for this. We'll catch up in a couple of weeks. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to the Bureau podcast. To read more of Sam Cooper's groundbreaking independent investigative journalism, subscribe at thebureau.news. To find out more about the Bureau podcast, visit bureau.news or my website, johnmccomb.com. That's John with no H. We'll catch up with you next time. Until then, take care and thanks for listening.